Good morning, Cedarville. As always, it is a joy to be with you all. Let me start by thanking Dr. White and Dr. Rogers for the opportunity. It's always a privilege to open the word uh, anytime, but especially with people who I love. Hey, I don't get the chance to address this many of you often, so let me just take the opportunity to encourage you. I don't know if you need encouragement this morning, but I know I speak on behalf of a lot of professors when I say this, but man, we love you. I, I think you guys are awesome. And it is an honor of a lifetime for me to get to do what I do with you all. The, the task of contemplating God and all things in relation to God with you all is seriously the honor of a lifetime. So just, just beginning an encouragement, know that we care for you, we believe you, we are in your corner, we want the best for you, and uh, as, a, as an encouragement to kick things off, keep pressing in. Press in, love the Lord, love your neighbor. All right, we have a lot of text to cover today, so let me pray and we will jump right in. God, you are tremendously good to us. We see even in this text, you are good in establishing a king and you are good in establishing the ultimate king in Christ Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that the theme of this sermon would be what we just sang, all hail King Jesus. Give us the eyes to see the text well, and in the text might we behold our king. God, would you stir in us affection for you, hunger for you, zeal for you. Would you help us care more about your glory than anything else in the world? And Lord, what we pray more than anything this morning, what we want more than anything this morning is we want you. So would you reveal yourself to us? In our beholding you, may we be transformed into your glory from one degree of glory to another. God be with us in Christ's mighty name, amen. As you know, our professors have been working through First and Second Samuel, this great narrative, this great Old Testament book. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think I'm the 13th sermon in this sermon series. And recently we have moved from First Samuel to Second Samuel. Today, I have been assigned the wonderful, partly daunting task of preaching 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. If you have your Bible, go ahead and start turning there. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of something that was said in the very first sermon in this series. It's been a minute. We've slept a few times since then. So let me just remind us. Uh, the very first sermon in this series was kicked off by our very own Dr. Trent Rogers. It was a feast of a sermon. I'm not just saying that because he's my boss and he's right here. It really was good. Uh, but in that sermon, Dr. Rogers outlined three themes that we should be looking out for in the book of First and Second Samuel. It, it's been a minute, so let me just repeat those three themes for you. Here are the three themes Dr. Rogers gave us. First, the sovereignty of God. We see God's sovereign control in these two books. Second, that God establishes his king in David, which points well beyond David. And then three, God exalts the humble and brings down the self-reliant. God exalts the humble and brings down the self-reliant. What's amazing in our text is we're actually gonna see all three themes. I'm gonna focus on point two, but we're gonna see all three themes. 
God is in his sovereignty going to establish the king of his choosing after Saul. That is King David to succeed Saul, point one. Though God told Saul he was going to be replaced by a son of Jesse, namely David, Saul tries to hold on to power by attempting to kill David, a few times actually. Yet David was humble and did not strike back at Saul because he did not want to strike against the Lord's anointed. In consequence to this, Saul is brought low and David is raised up, which was point two, or point three, I mean. And then in establishing David's kingship, God unites the people of God in chapter five and brings the presence of God in the ark in chapter six, which will end, in the end, point to realities beyond David, point two. So we have all three points here, point one, point two, and point three. For this sermon, I wanna zero in on point two, that God establishes his king in David, which points beyond David's kingship. Chapters five and six are way too much text to preach the way that I would normally preach, which is kind of a verse by verse exposition. I can't do that with with these two chapters. So what I'm gonna have to do instead is kind of pull a theme out of each of the chapters and that those themes will kind of give us the, 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 the rhythm of this sermon. So here's kind of what I'm after here. In chapter five, I wanna look at the theme of, of unity. David establishing unity in the kingdom as both Israel and Judah recognize his kingship in chapter five. So point one, if you're a note taker, here you are. Point one, David the king establishes unity in the kingdom of Israel. That's chapter five. Chapter six, point two, David the king establishes God's presence in the land of Israel. That's gonna be what we see in chapter six in the bringing in of the ark. And then point three, Christ the king establishes lasting unity in the kingdom and establishes God's presence with his people forever. So David establishes unity in the kingdom, chapter five. We see the presence of the Lord be with the people, chapter six. And in Christ, as the true and better king, we see a lasting unity and being ushered into the presence of the Lord. So let's jump into the text. Again, there's so much here, I can't cover it all, but um, this, is, that, this is gonna be kind of the framework. Also, as a heads up, to do the text justice, I need to spend most of my time kind of just working through the narrative. So the, the kind of the beginning of this sermon is gonna feel pretty text heavy, which is what you want in a sermon, is Bible, right? Uh, so it's gonna feel pretty text heavy at the beginning, but I will get to application. So just hang with me as we work through some of the narrative and then we'll get to application towards the end. Let's read 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be the prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. All right, so we see point one here. David, the king, establishes unity in the kingdom of Israel. This scene that we just read marks an important moment in David's kingship. 
As you may recall, David's road to becoming king hasn't been easy. There has been a lot of ups and downs in this journey. In fact, you might recall the previous king, Saul, attempted to take David's life numerous times as it becomes apparent that David is gonna be Saul's successor, not one of Saul's own children. This has caused David's path towards kingship to be a bit prolonged. I mentioned that most of the application will come at the end of this sermon, but there is, there is something that's worth applying immediately. We see in this text, uh, 2 Samuel 5, uh, 1 through 5, that, that David is anointed king by the elders of Israel. And what's interesting about that reality is if you, if you recall the whole narrative, this is actually David's third time being anointed. His third time. He is anointed in... 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel first meets David, right? He, he goes to Jesse and wants to meet Jesse's sons. He meets David and anoints David there. So that's the first time David is anointed. He's anointed again in 2 Samuel 2.4 when David was anointed as the king over Judah. But you might recall, there's quite a few things that have happened since that particular time of being anointed king over Judah. In fact, most commentators would say there's probably something of about a two-decade gap here between David's anointing in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and this third anointing over all of Israel. He was first anointed just over the southern tribes of Judah. Now he's being anointed over all of Israel, likely about 20 years in between. A commentator pointed out, kind of movingly for me, to be totally frank, uh, if you want to see why many of David's psalms are about waiting on the Lord, you might have an answer here. David waits about 20 years before he's recognized as king over all of Israel. But now, here in chapter five, the time has finally come. David is finally rightfully placed as the king over God's people. The elders and the Israelites who come to establish David's kingship recognize three things in David. First, they recognize him as a member of the covenant community. It starts with this, all of the tribes of Israel come together to David and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. David is one of them. He's one of the covenant people. Then they recognize just how valiant David has been on their behalf which we know from the narrative. They say, in times past, when Saul was king over us, even though he was king, it was you who brought us in. It was you who brought us victory. They recognize David for his valiant warrior. We can recall how successful David has been throughout the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Even when Saul tries to kill David a couple of times, even Saul's men are like, that, that's probably not a good idea. Remember, he's, he's kind of good at this fighting stuff. This is, this is not gonna go well for you. They even try to stop him because David is so valiant. So third, finally, they recognize in him the rightful king. The king that God has chosen for them. They recognize that calling in him. In their finally recognizing David as the rightful king, there is unity in Israel. David is established as a king, and this is a sign that God has blessed his people. Right? He has not left them astray, and he didn't even let them go astray at the hand of a, a pretty poor king towards the end of Saul's reign. But instead, God is faithful to his people and gives them a successor, a king after God's own heart, David. David. 
at least for now, the kingdom is unified under this one monarchy, this one monarch, King David. Keeping the narrative in mind will help us appreciate the weight of this united kingdom. A quick 50,000 foot flyover of how we got here. Saul was the first king in Israel and when it came about that David was going to replace Saul, the news did not come as good news to Saul. It did not come without its obstacles. First, Saul himself tries to take David's life numerous times and David responds with grace and mercy even though he could have stricken Saul. He, he, this repeated refrain throughout 1 Samuel that he will not strike the Lord's anointed. However, it isn't just Saul that wants to take David's life. Saul's not alone and wanting to kill this guy. No, there is a brilliant subplot happening in 1, 2 Samuel. And the subplot is this. When David is anointed to take over after Saul, we see the uh, very different response of Saul's children. Remember, Saul is king. And the way that monarchies work is when a king is replaced, usually that replacement will happen through an heir, a son of the king. And we've met a few sons of Saul, the king, in our particular story. And what's interesting is two of them take very different paths. Both of them recognize, hey, I am Saul's son. I should be king over Israel. One of them, Jonathan, we, we heard from him when Dr. Kevin Jones preached. Jonathan recognizes that while he is an heir of Saul and possibly a, a legitimate heir to the kingdom, that David is the Lord's anointed, not him. And Jonathan accepts this. He sees that David is the rightful heir, not himself. In fact, Jonathan goes way out of his way to protect David's life from his own dad. So Jonathan is a... Great response. He responds in humility. However, there is another brother. We read of a second son, Ishbosheth. Instead of recognizing David as the proper heir to Saul, Ishbosheth becomes the illegitimate king of the northern tribes of Israel. And this creates disunity. There is lots of war happening between these northern tribes and the southern tribes. The southern tribes who recognize David as kings, David as king, and the northern tribes who recognize Saul's son as king. There is a lot of war here, and as you might recall from the story, Ishbosheth, his life is taken from him by his own men. Two of his own men from his army kill him while he naps, which is never what you want to happen while you're napping. They stab him in the stomach and behead him. That is a bad nap. They take his head to David in hopes that David will reward them, but instead, David says they have struck down the son of God's anointed, and David has them put to death. This is another sign that David's commitment is to the Lord's timing, the Lord's plan. These two sons actually illustrate Dr. Rogers' point that the Lord will put down the prideful. We see that with Ishbosheth, the, the, the son of Saul, and he will raise the humble. We see that in Jonathan, who after Jonathan dies with his father Saul, David protects the line of Jonathan forever. Right? God raised up Jonathan and lowered Ishbosheth. So now David's two enemies are out of the picture. Saul's gone and his son is gone. The narrative picks up here with the elders of the north finally recognizing David's kingship, the way the elders of the south have done. 
So now the southern tribes and the northern tribes are united in this monarchy. They recognize David as the rightful king of Israel. To see God's favor upon David as the rightful king of Israel, chapter five has a lot more that we can't talk about. But just because I don't wanna shortchange you in this short chapel sermon, let me just fly over really quickly what the rest of chapter five gives us. And what we see here is God is blessing David. He is the rightful king over Israel. The, the kingdom is united. The southern tribes, the northern tribes all recognize him. And the rest of five is kind of the Lord showing that David has his blessing. In verses six through 10, God gives David victory in war and allows David to establish Jerusalem as the capital city of the kingdom. In verses 11 through 12, God gives David international recognition as the true king with arrangements of Hiram of Tyre in, in, in verses 11 and 12. In verses 13 through 16, God allows David's family to grow. And then finally, in verses 17 through 25, as if he hasn't beaten the Philistines enough, David has a few more victories over the Philistines in battle. Chapter five is summed up like this. The kingdom is finally united under the monarchy of David. God has blessed his people by providing this king and there seems to be blessing. If you have been reading 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, this is a little bit of hope and a story that has been pretty brutal, to be honest. There is a lot of beheading and killing in 1 and 2 Samuel and it's like, whew, for a moment, we can breathe. The king is here. Don't breathe too long because it gets kind of weird pretty quick. All right, this, this brings us to chapter six. What becomes quite clear in chapter five, the Lord has blessed his people. He has brought fruition, fruitfulness to the kingdom. But this idea of uniting the kingdom will be only heightened when we look at the true king, Christ. But before we get to Christological stuff, I wanna do some more justice to the text and move to chapter six. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter six real quick, at least the first 15 verses. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah the, the, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all of the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and, and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor at Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was very angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. 
So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. All right, there is a lot that has happened there. Let's just walk through it real quick. This section of chapter six, again, kind of brings a little bit of joy. Not only is David established as king as the, with the united monarchy, the king of a united Israel, but now the ark is gonna come to the city of Jerusalem, which David was able to take back in chapter five. However, it gets started with a little bit of a rocky start here. There is a significant point this is a significant point in the reign of David. We have seen David victorious in a lot of ways. David has been victorious in battle over the Philistines. He's been victorious in demonstrating his power and his might to the people of Israel. Remember, they shout, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. We have seen David victorious in so many ways, even against his own Enemies who want to kill him, Saul and Ishbosheth. But this is a really big victory for David. David is not only having victory in battle, we're gonna see a spiritual victory here as David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Zion, into Jerusalem. However, it doesn't get off without a severe hiccup. There's much we could say about the Ark looking at the Pentateuch, and I wish I could give you all of the theology here, but suffice it to say, the Ark of the Covenant is radically significant in the life of God's people. It's really hard to kind of stress just how significant the Ark is. It's the holding place of the Decalogue. It represents the presence of the Lord with his people. Maybe one of the best things we can see to see the significance of the Ark is that wherever it is, stuff happens. Right. If you remember 1 Samuel uh, chapter 5 specifically, when the Philistines capture the ark, they, they put it in the temple of Dagon. That was a bad idea. Right. One morning, Dagon, is, he's fallen over before the ark. They put him back up. The next morning, he's not only fallen over, but he's been, been headed and his hands have been cut off. Right. Where the ark of the Lord is, stuff happens. We see that not only in 1 Samuel 5, but in 2 Samuel 5 here as well. When David uh, realizes the ark is too powerful, right? Uzzah's just been killed for touching it. I don't want it in Jerusalem, right? He, he gives it, uh, he, he takes it aside to Obed-Edom. In the three months it's there, the Lord blesses that city. So whether for good or bad, bad in the Dagon example, good in the Obed-Edom example, the reality is this, wherever the ark is, stuff happens. The presence of the Lord changes things. That's one of the things we see in this narrative. And in bringing the ark to Jerusalem, the plan fails at first. David and his men seek to bring the ark from Baal Judah to the capital city of Jerusalem. But the text says something goes wrong. Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, brings the ark on a new cart. That might be a passing detail in the story to you, but that's actually pretty significant. They put the ark on a new cart. And this is a problem because taking the ark on a cart is a Philistine method of transportation. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel 6, 7 that God has given quite specific instructions 
on how the ark is to be transported. Numbers 4.15 specifically tells them not to put it on a cart. So they directly disobey the Lord here. As David and his men are transporting the ark, an oxen stumbles. And probably not out of a position of wanting to be disobedient, probably honestly out of a sincere disposition to want to not let the ark fall to the ground, Uzzah puts out his hand to catch the ark. And when Uzzah touches the ark, God kills him, strikes him down. That, that might seem like a startling detail in the story, but I think it's actually a really pedagogical detail. It teaches us something. And I think the thing it teaches us is this. God cares not only that he is worshiped, God cares how he is worshiped. He cares how. This is gonna matter for us, by the way. Of course, I'm gonna slip a little bit of theology in here. This is gonna matter for us when we get to the new covenant and think about the theology of ecclesiology. Sincere devotion is great. We can be sincerely wrong. God cares not only that he is worshiped, but how. Uzzah would have never had to touch the ark had they been carrying it the way that Numbers 4 instructs them to carry it. Putting it on a cart was a problem. Back to the text. For touching the ark, God strikes down Uzzah, which frustrates David, and he decides to abandon, to bring the ark into the city, and instead it goes to Obed-Edom. For three months, the ark remains there, and God blesses the city. Well, this reinvigorates David. He, he wants the ark in the capital city. So he, though the first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem fails, David tries again. And this second attempt is successful. David's much more careful to follow the Lord's instructions this round. We read in the text that after six steps, David sacrifices an ox and a fattened calf. Notice that the text says they bore the ark, meaning they're carrying it this time. They're listening to the instructions given to the priest to actually carry the ark that we see in the Pentateuch. They're doing it properly. The successful transportation of the ark and establishing the presence of the Lord with the people in Jerusalem causes David to dance before the Lord with all of his might. I'm not exactly sure what that means, to be totally honest. I'm Baptist, so the idea of dancing itself is interesting. Dancing with all my might? No way. <laughs> right, I don't, I don't even know what that variable means. But this is, what, this is what David does. The establishment of the presence of the Lord in the city of Jerusalem, the the, the the successful transportation of the ark into Jerusalem causes the people to rejoice. We don't have time to get into the end of chapter six, but it does end on a bit of a sour note, right? Uh, kind of a, the bringing the family relations back. One of David's wives is the previous king Saul, his daughter Michael. Michael is brought back to David and uh, she's not too happy about his rejoicing here. Uh, maybe because he was that bad at dancing with all of his might. That's probably not the, the, the point of the text, but it's just too hard not to read it like that. Uh, Michael is not happy with the way that David responds, right? She thinks he's not being dignified. However, David's response shows the joy of God's presence, the joy of him finally being successful in what was a, a significant point of his kingship establishing God's presence with the people. Okay, with that, with that conclusion, 
with, with chapter and five kind of landing, you, you need to know something about this, the narrative of first and second Samuel. And the thing you need to know really is that I'm just the setup man. Chapters five and six are amazing, of course. They're God breathes, they're, they're profitable, but really the crescendo of this thing is coming in chapter seven. The crescendo of this story is, is next chapel sermon. So I'm just, I'm just the, the opening act here. With the conclusion of this scene, the narrative will reach its climax of chapter seven. In chapter seven, the narrative of David is going to reach the high point as God tells David, not only has he made him king, but from the house of David will come a king forever. From the house of David, God will establish his rule permanently. And you might be able to anticipate it. This is where we're getting into point three. Christ the king establishes lasting unity in the kingdom. Christ the king establishes a permanent presence of God with the people. On this side of the new covenant, I don't wanna take too much from chapter seven. Dr. Arnold's gonna crush it there. I have very high confidence of that. But on this side of the new covenant, we know that promise that comes in the next chapter is ultimately fulfilled with that man, Jesus Christ. Dr. Rogers said one of our major themes to watch out for in 1st and 2nd Samuel is the way in which David's kingship points beyond David's kingship. The very opening stanza of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 1.1 is this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, we read, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and he is in his tomb to this day. And his tomb is with us to this day, sorry. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. From the line of David, would come one who would ultimately unite God's kingdom and who would ultimately usher in the presence of God. To be clear, the point of, of 2 Samuel chapter five and six is not some messianic prophecy about someone who will do that. I don't think that's the case. However, I do think we'd be missing out on beauty if we didn't allow our eyes to be lifted from the earthly kingship of David a little bit higher to that eternal kingship of Christ and see how the amazing, beautiful thing David accomplishes here, unity in the kingdom and establishing God's presence will ultimately be fulfilled with the true King, Christ. For when we see this one, Jesus Christ the righteous, the son of David, we get an eye full of the one who didn't just unite the northern and southern tribes. We see, rather, the one the long-awaited Messiah who unites all of God's children, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, all who trust in him. He uniquely has the power to bring us together and forming the one new man, the one new people. Even in one of his longest and last recorded prayers, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, Lord, let them be one. Christ cares about unity. He cares about it. And we need to hear that. We are a people living in disunity. This Christ cares to unite his people. 
And listen, his unity will be infinitely better than the unity David brought in his earthly kingdom, right? If you know your Old Testament story, you guys are all part of the greatest minor of this campus, the Bible minor. And you, you probably have had OT lit then, and you know how the story goes. Yeah, there's a united monarchy here, but it doesn't last very long, right? Scholars might disagree a little bit about the, the dating, but probably somewhere around 930, the, the kingdom splits again under Solomon's reign. That, that date becomes significant in the story of Israel. So does 722, the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria. 586, the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon, right? The, the kingdom might have been united under the monarchy of David, but it doesn't stay that way. Christ unity is different. As we are all grafted into the same vine, united to the same savior, redeemed by the same blood, Christ brings together the varying pieces to make something beautiful. Christ brings harmony and forms something beautiful and lovely out of that which is hardly beautiful and hardly lovable. To borrow a refrain that David would have been familiar with, King David temporarily united his hundreds of thousands, but Christ the king forever unites his hundreds of millions. Unity is not our only emphasis in these chapters. So too is establishing the presence of the Lord. In chapter six, we see King David bringing the ark back to the city and establishing the presence of God with the people of God. Well, my friends, look to the true and better king. Look to him. And hear what he says about ushering the presence of God. We know this man, Christ Jesus, is our Emmanuel, God with us. Christ didn't give us a religious artifact. As significant as an artifact as the Ark of the Covenant is, Christ doesn't give us an artifact. He gives us himself, God in the flesh. You wanna talk about bringing God's presence. This is the one who could say to Philip, Philip, have you been with me though this long and you still don't know? Those who have seen me have seen the Father. This is the one Hebrews 1 can say long ago and many times and in many places, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. This is the one who utterly ushers us into the presence of the Lord. This is the one who will one day be mocked with a sign, the king of the Jews over his head, but he is the king. As we sing, all hail this king. He is the king who ushers in the presence of God and will one day usher us into the full presence of God as our faith is turned to sight and we enjoy the resurrection that he purchased. Hear this, whereas David established the presence of God by bringing home the Ark of the Covenant, Christ establishes us in the presence of God by bringing us home in the fulfillment of the new covenant. Whatever it meant for David to dance with all his might, I'm sure it was wonderful. But I'm confident it will be nothing compared to the rejoicing that takes place before the throne of God. As the true and better king brings us before the presence forever. Friends, you will be brought into the presence of God fully accepted. Fully clothed in Christ's righteousness. So Cedarville Behold your king. Behold the, the, the King David, who is a vital part of our narrative. He's a vital part 
of not just first and second Samuel's story, he's a vital part of your story. Behold King David, who God used mightily, who is worthy of imitation, who is the one who is after God's own heart. Behold this earthly king and be thankful to the Lord for providing. And then lift your eyes a little. Let your eyes move from the earthly reign of King David to the heavenly reign of our King Christ. Lift your eyes to the true and better king who establishes unity forever and brings us into the presence of the Lord forever. Yes, let for the rest of your days, your eyes look to him. If you want an application point from this sermon, here it is. Behold the king. Behold him. Behold your king, Cedarville, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our good king. We thank you for ectypal kings who show us what a good kingdom might look like. We, we have a few of them at least in the biblical narrative of the Old Testament. But we, thankful, we are ultimately thankful that you are not some ectypal king, but you are the archetype. You are the good king. You are the king who loves his people enough to be strung up on a Roman cross as a traitor. And you are the unique king who isn't just man, but God enough to actually do something about our sin. God, help us behold you. Give us eyes that aren't prone to wayward lesser loves. Let us keep our vision fixated on you that we might pilgrim with faithfulness. Until our faith is turned to sight, Lord, be with us. Be our king. We love you. We need you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.